0: Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish. This is a special episode of Sly Flourish's The Lazy d Talk Show. In this episode, this is we're shooting this at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on March 1st, 2022. And this is the end of the month Patreon Q&A video. So we're gonna focus exclusively on questions that have come in from patrons of Sly Flourish and answer those questions on this show for all of the remaining questions that we've had in the February Patreon Q&A. So every month, on the Sly Flourish Patreon, you can, uh, I put up a post that says, let's have a Q&A and lots of people post questions there. I answer them on the Q&A itself. I answer them on on the Patreon post itself. Sometimes I will shoot a short video if I think it's a topic where this is like a really, I get many good ideas from these that turn into articles for Sly Flourish or short topic videos. Many times I will cover the question in a talk show and 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 then some I only answer on, on Patreon. I'm this month, so my, I think tomorrow, think it's tomorrow i'm going to post the march q a post with a couple little stipulations uh, about what to post there including one question per person trying to trying to keep them a little brief right just a little bit if you can if you can and re- re- remembering that even if i don't i will i will certainly answer every question but some of them i may only answer on the patreon itself i might not answer them on the show i might not answer them in video i might not answer them on slide that doesn't mean i don't love you I still love the questions and I still want to answer them. And it means the world of me, it means the world to me of people coming and answering, asking those questions. It's really a great joy. It was one of the, one of my favorite things that we've, that we've set up with the Patreon is that Q and A. So I really love the Q and A. So let's, uh, we're going to, we're going to dive right in. First off, I want to give my disclaimer. I'm just a dude. Right? When, when I'm answering these questions, it's not coming from some mountain on high of vast knowledge. Like we're all DMS. We're all trying things out. We're all experimenting all the time. Hopefully, right? Hopefully we're trying things out. And so, so what I'm sharing are kind of my experiences, right? And unlike some of the things where I've done deep research in it to really try to understand how lots of DMs, these are off the cuff. So I'm just kind of giving my thought. It doesn't mean it's any better than anybody else's thought. I like to think of this as like, imagine you and I are at a coffee shop and we're enjoying a coffee and we're talking about this stuff, right? You're going to talk to all kinds of people. I've talked to all kinds of people that way. And you get lots of really interesting thoughts from people, right? Everybody's got good ideas. So... Keep it keep that right This is not me saying this is absolute truth and you know I'm so super smart about this stuff. There are parts of D;D I feel like I'm very experienced with and then there are many parts that I am not. So keep that in mind. many of these are opinionated, many of these come in one angle, all that kind of stuff. Just keep that in mind. The other thing is uh, we now have a for patrons a lazy DD talk show video topics database. This is a notion page. I have a, a sample of this page right over here. And I, look, I did a search for point crawl. This has fi- all 500 topics of the talk show, including all of the Patreon questions. And you can click on any one of these. You can this this for for patrons of Sly Flourish. If you go to your main rewards page on the Sly Flourish Patreon, it is now linked in that page. It'll also be linked in the Q and A that I the Q post that I put up tomorrow. So if you can't find it, you'll see it tomorrow. But every one of these, if you say, "Oh, player world building, what's that like?" You can click that link, and it jumps straight into a NBC video. He says, "I've noticed a few other RPG content creators." It it jumps right into the video for that particular subject. So if you want to see all of the other patron questions that have been asked, they're all here and you can search it, right? You can do a search and say, hi, what what has anybody talked about starts? Well, we'll say start, right? Restarting all adventure, non-combat, strong starts for adventures. So, you know, it's a great way to check that thing out. That was something I put together this past week. I'm very excited about it. And that's a great way to see all these questions. All of the questions you're seeing tonight will be when this video is posted, which I think will be next week. It'll be the second week of March. All of these topics will be added to that database and you can find them all. So let's talk about some questions. Let's 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 dive into some questions. Tim B. I have a player in my game who's extremely mechanics focused, often at the cost of any role playing. He often chooses the custom lineage race option from Tasha simply because it offers a free feat and a good stat boost without giving any thought as to who his character is or what they look like. As a very story-focused EM, I found this challenging. How do I write story hooks for a character with no backstory? The question is, how do you personally handle players who approach the game very differently than you? And is it appropriate to expect them to conform to your style of play? A lot of it depends, I think, on how on the agreements that you have at the table. I I, I realize, and I think a lot of people do this, I don't think I'm the only one, that a lot of it is like session zero, right? Like session zero is the ultimate solution to everybody's problems you should you should be able to carve everything into sessions here and that's not really true it is a nice tool sitting down before a campaign and trying to make sure everybody's on the same page can really help but also in this case you you've got a player who wants to play the game a certain way right and there's not that's not wrong they're not wrong about how they're playing the game they are enjoying the game the way they want to enjoy the game the question is is the way that they're enjoying the game taking away from the joy of other people including you Right, is is their way. So like, if somebody's really mechanics focused, but their character is okay and it's pretty balanced, and they just you know if they're not dominating combat every time, or they're not getting really bored, or they're not disrupting play, I think it's okay to kind of let them be who they want to be. Right, if they focus that direction, that's okay. I, I I do have some players in my games that are mechanics focused, right, and they multi class a lot, and they. Definitely tweak things. And they took, you know, they, they dip into fighter or dip into cleric so they can get like heavy armor master, even though they're a sorcerer. And they do stuff like that. They've got certain things that they want to do that mechanically help them out. But even when they do that, it doesn't really disrupt the game. It, it hasn't meant that I haven't been able to give them a challenging fight or that they've always been steamrolling through every encounter or anything like that. And in that case, we just, we just go that way, right? It's okay. Some players are more interested in role-playing than others. Some players are more interested in, in the mechanic-y side than others. The question is, can we all, does it, does it work at the table or not? I think trying to, you say, is it appropriate to expect them to conform to your style of play? It is if you didn't tell them what it was. And it is if you didn't make that agreement ahead of time. If you did make you know if you' if you are able to kind of start fresh with a new campaign and say i'm really interested in making sure that we have a story focused campaign where all the characters have x y and z they can kind of decide if that game's not for them but if it's somebody you've been playing with for a while that can also be like like why are you building the game now so that it excludes the kind of play that I want it might be a conversation to have right sometimes people drift in and out of games because the, the game style is different than they want so i don't I don't i would i'm always careful to try to say like you you know you, you're you're ultimately not the guide to determine how they should be enjoying the game, right? They can enjoy the game lots of different ways. Some people just like being there, right? Some people just enjoy the social interaction of being with their friends, which is also great. Some people really like story or background or character or mechanics or whatever. Lots of different ways that they come. The question is, are the ways that they're enjoying the game being disruptive to other people? And if so, how, and how do you address that? That to me feels like feels like the, 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 the tricky bit. Tim, I hope that helped answer your question. Step back says thinking about where i can improve as a gm i have found one major flaw oh i love this one i am too nice step back what are you doing you need to crush their spirit i was talking last time i talked about letting them play their style no you want to crush their joy just squeeze it out of them i am too nice and it lets my games not feel much like a challenge that's a different how do i swallow my canadian instincts and make my games the challenge it needs to be to be fun i don't think there's any problem being nice I, I am nice. I try to be a nice DM. I want people to have fun. I want people to really enjoy the game. And I'm on their side. I am a fan of the characters. I'm a fan. I'm friends of the players and I'm a fan of the characters. That doesn't mean they're not going to face a challenge, right? And... I think we've all talked here about how to do challenges. Like, go ahead. And you know, if it, if it makes sense, turn the, turn the fire hose on and throw three times the deadly range at monsters. If it, if it comes out. So I, the detail I think matters, how do you swallow your Canadians? I mean, if you're talking about like turning the dials or s- straying away from character death, when it clearly would have happened, like that's something you really want to think about, but that's different than like being nice or being mean. Right? Like I, I really, I say this and people don't believe me, but like, I'm an antenna for the story that's happening. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a vehicle, right? I'm a vehicle for this story. I don't, I don't make things happen. They happen. And I'm here to kind of shepherd them. Right. So sometimes hard things happen. And it, it sounds like BS, right? It sounds like BS the way when Stephen King says the book's already written and I'm just carving, or, you know, they talk about sculptors and the sculptors like the statues already in that block of marble. I'm just helping it escape. Right. Or Stephen King saying, I'm plucking these ideas and transmitting, right? Well, kinda, but really if you think more about it that way, that like the situation is the situation and it's independent of you or your feelings or how nice or how mean you are, the situation's a situation and it runs the way it runs and things happen or don't happen. Some other things like rolling the dice in the open is a big one, right? Like I roll in the open when I'm using, if I'm using an online die roller app, I make sure it's one that they can see. So if they crit, if the monsters crit, everybody saw the crit, right? I don't, I don't roll behind the scenes. I like to joke that like, I don't, I don't cheat on die rolls. Like I don't, I'm not gonna fudge a D20. I will fudge everything else, (laughs) right? I'll fudge, everything else is fudgeable. The number of hit points, number of attacks, how much damage they do, number of monsters, all that kind of stuff, I'll fudge all that. I'll fudge reactions. I was thinking I was thinking about a monster that I'm that I'm probably going to run tomorrow, right? And this monster is really really hard for the level of the characters, and it has a multi attack that's brutal. And I'm like, that doesn't mean he has to multi attack. I think he's just going to attack once. And I was thinking like he might attack once, and then if he misses, attack again. But he's not going to attack twice because he's having fun, right? This particular NPC is like having a good time. So like that, you kind of think about. But putting yourself in the heads of the this, putting, your, putting yourself in the situation, putting yourself in the heads of the monsters, you know, and acting as they would act, I think, can kind of help sort of hedge the are you are you are you hedging, are you holding back, right? Are you being too nice in that you know they're in deadly situations? But the other one is like being nice. I wouldn't I, being nice is not a sin. Being nice is we want to be nice. We should all be nicer. Yeah, Scipio knows Agdon, right? Agdon long scarf, badass. A little hard for level twos. But not, not, not a surprise, given how Watsi handles low-level characters. Luciano N, do you limit turn time of your players in combat? What could we do if players take too long to decide their actions? This is tough. And there's some hard, there's some big things you can do, right, that, that help. But not everybody wants to do the big things. But I'm going to state them because they really matter. You want to have, you have um, shorter combats? Have fewer players, right? Instead of having seven players, have four, right? I was talking to somebody who's like, I never have more than three, right so (laughs) you know have fewer players number one way to keep your battles short I that's not practical right that's like oh yeah what are you telling me i already got seven players six players or whatever first of all really don't you really want to think hard about having seven i'm not sure you want to have seven other things you can do is stay stay at low level right at like going tier one tier one combat goes pretty fast tier two it starts to slow down tier three and four it's going to be slow And if it's going to be slow just let it be slow right that's okay if everyone's having a good time and the battle takes two hours that's okay i've i've run scenarios at the end of campaigns where they're in tier three or tier two to tier tier three and i've let them have big fights right the other tricks are like if i i you know i preach the same things sometimes a lot Uh, theater of the mind is fast right and it's fast because there's not a lot of decisions to make there's not a lot of tactically movement you're just saying like there's three guys in front of you what are you gonna do so using tag, and I know like a lot of people are like no, I really like the grid. Try it for small battles. First of all, run run easy fights. I talk about this too. Run easy fights. Don't run every single fight as an attrition to take away the resources of the characters. Don't worry about that. Right, take run easy battles like run two drunken hobgoblins right my, my personal favorite like and those battles go fast because it's not hard to kill two drunken hobgoblins and they open up a lot of interesting options that might not be combat so that's really interesting too but okay let's put all those aside so you know fewer players lower level faster battles theater of the mind you know but i know what you're saying i already have six players we're already level 13 we like the grid and i i they're so powerful i need to really do attrition. So what do you do then? Um, you can again talk to them out offline and ask them. There's some dirty tricks that we use, like make sure to call ahead, make sure everybody can see initiative, and always have tell the next person they're on deck. If they're a little slower, ask them like, hey, you're on deck. You might want to think about what you're going to do given the situation. Sometimes players have decision paralysis, and pushing them doesn't help. Right? I've seen this where people are kind of indecisive, and you, you you're kind of like. You know, you push them a little bit, and it just makes them more nervous and less decisive. That's 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 a, that's a trick to deal with. But but you know, offering a couple of options if they're if they're willing to saying like, it's your turn. Do you want to run up an attack? Do you want to sit back and use your bow? Do you want to cast a spell? Maybe you want to use this thing. If you look at their sheet and you know a little bit about the character, you can offer a couple of optimal options given the situation that can speed things up. I've heard of people using, and I used to do it in the fourth edition days of using an egg timer or something like that. You know, you can, you can do that. I don't think that helps really. I'm not, I'm not big into it. So Luciano, it's a tough problem and, and it's a problem that many people have. So I hope, I hope that that, I hope that that answers your question. Joshua B, I have a druid player who makes great use of the conjure animal spell. I remember this one, this is about the octopus. Druid player makes great use of the conjure animal spell. That's good and I'm happy, but his use of the giant octopus in particular, I find very frustrating as a DM. Its ability to grapple and, and, and significant amount of hit points makes it a pretty powerful opponent i thought about taking away the spell and having him use the Tasha Summon spells instead, as you recommended in a recent podcast. I do like the new Tasha spells. The new Tasha Summon spells are definitely better. But I also feel conflicted because he's using his given spells and abilities well, And I don't want to punish him for that. Should I just plan on this bloody giant octopus being present in combat? How would you handle it? It's a good question. Like, is he doing it all the time, right? Is that giant octopus showing up all the time? I thought that there were some limitations, but I think I got corrected on this. Uh, So we're going to take a look at the giant octopus. First of all, did they see the giant octopus? Because I think it's a monster they have to see. But you don't want to, you know, if they're already doing it. This is more for people who... You know, where this is, this is a problem. A giant octopus is, a oh, challenge rating one, 52 hit points. So I wonder what level they're summoning it at. It can only make one tentacle, one, but it's restrained. That's pretty good, right? Uh, octopus can breathe only underwater, but somebody, oh, but it can hold its breath for up to one hour, Right. So one thing, it is concentration. Somebody, yeah, uh, Ranger Sierra says, "Hey, keep in mind it's concentration. So if you poke the summoner, it's going to drop the octopus. That works." It, this is one of those tricks where like it's fun the first time, and it's fun on occasion. It's not fun if every battle they're pulling out the giant octopus, right? It's kind of a fun thing to do once in a while. So you might you might talk to you know I, I don't know if Teos is still hanging around, but you might talk like like Teos says and say like you know. Hey, how would you feel about really saving the giant octopus for special occasions, right? Just from because it's it's getting like it's it's kind of a weird thing to have happen all the time. Would you be good with it out of character? Like, would you be good with kind of saving your giant octopus for the special battles? And they might say, sure, right. So that's that's a kind of question. The other one, like, is the like the I would I would argue. I know this isn't rule as written, but like when you take an aquatic creature and you put it on land and you summon it like this. I don't think it's going to be super happy, right? It wants to, it like, hold, the fact that it can hold its breath for an hour doesn't mean it's happy about it. And you might, you could BS your way and not say, like, it, you know, it gives disadvantage, right? The ink doesn't really work because it, it doesn't, it doesn't spray underwater, right? If you know, ink cloud extends it all around octopus, if it's underwater, right? And if not, it doesn't really do anything. It's squirt on the ground. So, you know, I would, I would, I would talk to them about it. And if they were doing it, if if they did it, if somebody knew is doing it, I might say like, I get it. The giant octopus is a thing, but like first of all, I would I would argue like, have you seen one? I I really like the idea that you can summon creatures. I guess the summon animals is different. Like that, that one's not a creature you've seen that's polymorph that really has that. So maybe that's not a real good answer. But I might argue that, like, it's not a happy creature, You know, it's not a happy critter. It's not the same as like summoning wolves, right? Where wolves are on land anyway. It'd be like summoning wolves underwater, right? Like, how how happy are those wolves? But I might I might just have the conversation outside of character. I think that's probably the my my best answer would be uh, talk to them out of game and say, hey, how would you feel about keeping the giant octopus, you know, aside for special occasions, right? And that just limits it a little bit. Otherwise, you know, you just kind of enjoy it and let, let, it, let them be whoops chad m i am excited to follow along a new Numenera game thank you game updates and thoughts one comment i found interesting out there in the mm, guy Ginormiverse was from a i don't know what that means was from a gm maybe i i kind of copied and pasted that wrong was from a gm who felt the players had a hard time encountering many creatures because they were all new and novel that is an interesting situation anything could have a feature that could be dramatic and deadly and the players would have no frame of reference to engage them. It's a game of exploration but but I was uh, but it was an interesting comment. As you prep, have you come across this yet? My thoughts would be to foreshadow or leave clue leave clues to what the creatures could do i think the example is a creature with 100 eyes that led to a tbk since whoa, all those eyes turned into projectile weapons i don't know about that one i don't know about the one with 100 eyes but the the thing about numenera that helps is even though all the creatures are goofy and weird everything has a level and the level is exposed to the players so you are able to say like this is a level 7 threat and they all go we have to roll 21 or better unmodified and we can't it's a d20 and you're like yeah so they know When they see a creature that's high level, they know it's high level. The level is exposed to the players, which means even the goofiest creature, the weirdest creature you've never seen before. If it's a level two, you know it's pretty easy. If it's level five, you know, eh. You know, if it's like level seven, you're in trouble, right? And so, level nine, you better run. Level ten, it's going to wipe out the planet. So, you know, those that level is a really handy gauge. And because it's exposed to the players, it's a really handy gauge for players to be able to get an idea how deadly something is. I don't, I haven't seen creatures. There are some creatures where they seem to be higher than their level. They, they have features that kind of make them higher than the level. I haven't seen a big one like that, right? I haven't seen anything where a big one is like that, but it is a trick. And, and it's hard for both players and DMs, I think of, of Numenera to get their head around the idea. They're like, everything you see is weird right like injecting the weird is a big piece of Numenera everything is weird all the monsters are weird the locations are weird it's it you know it's a it's a trick right it's it's a it's it's a bit of a trick as octopus summoner I, I was an octopus summoner it was a blast but I knew it was annoying so I had a self-ruled certain circumstance to use that's that's what I mean there's you know I talked about this a little bit that like you know players can be nice too right and maybe you need to be to a player like look I, I know you love this thing a lot i don't <laughs> right it would help if you didn't i i have players who like yes i can summon woodland beings but i'm not going to right all right i ask them like would it be okay like you don't have to make hard rules we're just we're all friends and you're like look that thing just doesn't work as well you know like this 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 concept doesn't fit the our overall theme as well or it's just really hard for me to deal with that every time could you could you use that only when in certain circumstances right i think i think that that works and cr1 bandit says i put the i uh, have to see limit on druids with wild shit because i don't want dinosaurs in the game yeah I think there are some of that summoning things where it helps if you've seen it. And it also kind of makes a new form of loot, right? Like I had players in my Frostmaiden game who were excited to see like mammoths. They were like, when I saw a mammoth, because it unlocks a thing. It's like catching a Pokemon, right? They're like, oh. And so if you can find a way to throw a giant ape in there, like I got the giant ape. I get to polymorph into giant apes now. It is very Pokemon-y. So you can actually turn it into a reward. You know, that idea. So yeah, definitely, definitely need stuff. Let's hit the next question. Bram M says, I am having trouble getting fantastic locations into my games. Maybe my homebrew settings are too normal for making big set pieces, but it's hard to think of something every session. It's almost like there's a blockage in my head for making cool places. How would you scale down fantastic locations when your first advice is making them all big? yeah, big and old, right? My, my trick, my, my, my dirty trick was big and old, but there's other ways too, and not to, not to pitch my own book, but you did ask me that like the lazy DMs companion. If you look in the monument section, both the workbook and the companion have lots of ways to kind of, shake up ideas about the kinds of things people would find i if you've watched my numenera games the, the numenera prep videos you've seen me rolling on tables to try to gin up weird stuff right so i really like that idea. i like the idea of combining multiple tables together i love the like origin table and the condition table and the weird effect table and the monument table, and that gives you four tables with twenty val, you know, twenty different options each, and you just roll on those, and they give you ideas about weird things they could find. So I really like that style. I use it a lot when I'm trying to make fantastic locations. The other thing is like, and this is true in Numenera too, right? Not every room needs to be weird. Not every single chamber needs to have some new strange thing. It works when you. You know, you want to kind of, you kind of want to put them in when they make sense, right? And and it's okay to have like the storage closet, right? It's it's not great, but like if they're in a normal place, like functional rooms are are important too, right? So not everything needs to be fantastic, but yeah. Golden Buffalo 76 is a fantastic location can be mundane. In Stephen King's memoir, he describes a restaurant in remarkable detail. Same book that Mike referenced earlier. Yeah so you know you don't always have to be fantastic but if you if you're having trouble with it i do recommend i really like the monuments table i have them i think i yeah i have the monuments table in both the lazy dms companion and the lazy dm workbook because it's a powerful tool and that random using random tables to kind of shake up your mind and then what i do is i do them during prep i get a few of them i kind of write down i think well, what does that mean or what's the cool bit about that and i go with that so hopefully that helps that's a way to get out from just old and big old and big ones. Connor Y says the group I am running in has been playing online ever since the virus. I got some interesting things we're going to talk about on, on Sunday in Sunday's show about massive, massive shifts in people that used to play in person that now play online. And that it was a dramatic shift, a bigger, bigger shift than I've ever seen in any poll I've ever run. We've worked out most of the kinks in online play, but we still have trouble regarding talking order. Ultimately I believe the DM is the first priority when talking online or not. Sure. Uh, though I often start speaking, I need a second to gather my thoughts. And a player misinterprets that pause as the conclusion of my dialogue. My question is, do you have any tips or ideas for talking order structure? Or perhaps a way to practice the etiquette of talk order? We really want a systemic order to follow. But I think that it really boils down to individual player responsibility. Yeah. So I really recommend taking a look at Ginny, Ginny D's video about table etiquette for online play. It's the best video that I've seen on it. I really recommend it. Uh, I'll link to it in the uh, in the show notes. It's a fantastic video that talks a lot about the issues of online engagement and how that works. And there's a lot of tricks with it, right? A lot of people talking over each other, nobody knows when. I've also talked about the paralyzing effect of it, right? The paralyzing effect is that everybody, nobody says anything, and then you like want them to talk and they're not talking. So the idea of calling on particular players. I think if you think you're going to get into a section where you're going to have a, a pause, say. You just let them know, right? Like, uh, you know, I don't know how you say it exactly, but come up with a come up with a good thing that says like, hey, stay quiet until I'm done with the, you know, I'm going to describe something if you guys could hold on for a second. I'll let you know as soon as I'm ready to get the feedback and let them know, like, just stay quiet and talk. You could also, a lot of my players have kind of figured out on their own to use the text chat to talk, right? And you can watch the text chat and they can talk in there while you're talking and it shouldn't interrupt. them. The problem is sometimes if people are reading the text chat, they're not listening to you. That's an issue too. So I would, you know, you can come up with a system, I think probably just notifying them when it's that time. I remember that when I was on a talk show for podcasts, we used to have this thing where in the text chat, somebody, this is uh, on, on the talk show, on the, it was on Jeff Griner's show. I forget which one, uh, but Tracy Hurley was on it and Jeff and myself and usually Sam or somebody else would be on it and we would talk. And because there were like four or five people, talking over each other would be really hard. And we used to have a thing where we'd say moo, right? And moo was like taking turns and talking. So you could say like, you know, next, just say like in the text chat, if you want to say something, say this, and then I'll call on you down the, down the row, right? I'll say like, yeah, you know, you know, Jeff, what do you want to say? And it was a good way of doing moderation without people talking over one another. And that was during a podcast show. So that, that can, that kind of thing can work too. use the text chat. Say like if you if you have something you want to say, just put a mark in the text chat, and I'll make sure to call on you. And that way, they have a, an order to to talk. So I think that that can help. So Connor, I hope that helps a little bit. It's a you know these are tough problems, right? If you you're you're not coming, you guys aren't going to come to this show with a bunch of easy problems. Savannah P says, "I'm currently running a sandbox style game, or what will be after they finish the starting adventure. I really like the idea of using point crawls for exploration, and wanted to know your thoughts on how big you think they should or can go." Specifically, I'm wondering if point crawls could be used for a larger region like the Sword Coast. I swear I've answered this question before, but I couldn't find it. Or do you think they would work better for smaller areas like cities and dungeons? I think they can work anywhere. I think point crawls are an incredibly flexible idea. So for those that aren't aware of like what the hell a point crawl is, a point crawl is essentially a way of handling overland travel in a similar way to the way you run a dungeon. Only instead of rooms and halls that kind of of build dungeons, it's locations and paths. Right, your locations could be small, like the, the, a statue, right, a, an old crumbling statue of a goddess, or it could be Waterdeep, right, a city of a million people. So those si- the 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 locations can be any kind of size, and then there's a path that takes you there, like the the toll road, the trade way, right, like Waterdeep, Dragon Spear to Waterdeep, or or Dragon Daggerford to Dragon Spear are two locations, two, you know, Dragon Spear is a castle and a ruin. And I'm looking at my map on the wall. And Dragon, and Daggerford is a small city, right? And the tradeway is a path that connects them. The tradeway is a road, right? But you could also say like the troll, there's paths through the troll moors. You know, I don't think the troll moors are there. The troll hills, right? There's a path through the troll hills that also gets there. So the idea of a point crawl is it's a network of locations and paths. The paths are in world paths. They could be, a shoreline they could be a river they could be a dried riverbed they could be a dimensional portal they could be you know anything right and then the 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 locations that connect them but the answer to your question is they could be as big or as small as you want they could be very small right like a, a small area of a wood they could also be all of the sword coast right so i think there's no limitation on uh, size, right? I think they can go very big, and I. But I like the idea. To me, the, the thing that really works, and they say this in the Dungeon Masters Guide, the Fifth Edition Dungeon Masters Guide, doesn't use the to- the term point crawl, but it definitely talks about that concept, which is you can handle overland travel the same way you're handling a dungeon, which is instead of rooms and halls, it's locations and paths, and you can still do J. K. Style things with secret paths and loopbacks and weird layers and all kinds of stuff. There's so many things you can do. You know, look up look up like Jay Quang, the Dungeon, an Alexandrian article about how to really make interesting dungeons with lots of w- interesting ways to interact with them, and you can do the exact same thing with point crawls. So it works. It works well with point crawls. So Savannah, I hope that answers your question. Jason K, you've mentioned in several videos about having an outline for your campaigns to give some structure to the plot you are imp- improvising. Yes. Uh, do you have any suggestions for how GM might create such? that supports and is supported by the session development and spiral campaign development. And how would you handle a short campaign, eight sessions, compared to an epic campaign, 50 sessions or more? I want structure to give my improv some direction, yep, but I'm not sure how to handle that in that approach. So yeah, you may have seen you may, you may have seen in other ones, you might see a Numenera one, where I'm starting to get my head around, like, what do I generally think this campaign is going to be like? You know, what... What sort of things are on the way? And like in my Eberron campaign, they they took very different paths, but I still had a general idea. Like it's, it just helps. It just helps me to have like a feeling that I've got some organization for this campaign. It doesn't mean it's going to happen that way, but it means I have like an idea of the big beats, right? So keeping like that, that small focus on... You know, keeping keeping a small focus, just a small list, like an easy list. I like to think of it like locations. I, I I tend I'm a big location. Locations work well for me as a as a model. Like instead of plots, I like to think of places that they're going to go to or places I might visit. And that gets into the whole idea of finding places that are appropriate for the level of the characters, right? You don't want to send them to the plane, you know, to to the city of brass and the plane of fire, at level three. I mean, I'm sure people have done it, but you know, that's probably better for tier two or tier three or tier four, right? Like why, you know, the old ruined watchtower that's outside of town, that's not a 17th level place to go, right? So you can sort of break down and say, like, for my campaign, how many locations do I want? And if you think about a location as being like two or three sessions, so you say if it's eight sessions or less, that might be four or five locations they'd visit. Right, and what are those four locations going to be, and who's there, and what's going on, and is there a general plot, and that's when your that's when your idea of the villains come in, like who are the villains, and what are they up to, and what goals do they have, and what plots are they unhatching, and how do those relate to the locations. So you'll see it, and an example examples that I've done before are uh, taking a look at the campaign outlines that I've done on Sly Flourish before, like the uh, one to twenty null campaign, the one to twenty Demogorgon campaign, the I have a few, I think I've got three or four campaigns where i just kind of wrote out like the locations of of places you also don't need to fill them out as much as i might have done on those sites because i'm handing those to you and you're just working for yourself so you know just having a list can can help but i think it still supports spiral campaign development because you're really focusing on the characters here and now what they're doing and and that list is fuzzy nobody's seen it yet you can throw it away Right, So I think that that works. So Jason, I hope, I hope that helps. Sam M says, I have been pondering over the topic of player agency, specifically how to run a fight where one or more PCs could be turned against the party with something like dominate person and monster. I know you've talked about modifying the vampire charm person to be just the charm person making the attack or another action as opposed to being fully controlled. But what I'm wanting to see is if it is possible to have the player be wholly in control of their character while also turning against the other players. Maybe this is more of a skilled role-playing sort of issue. It really depends, right? And if you're going to do that kind of thing, it helps to, you know, like, pause for a minute, right? This is a good opportunity. If you haven't covered this in a session zero, if you haven't said, like, hey, are we gonna, ha- how are we going to handle domination? Some players just hate to have their characters controlled like that. And they also don't want to attack their friends. Other players are totally into it. But not everybody might be into it. And if you say, like, oh, I cast Dominate on the Barbarian, and the Barbarian's sweet, I'm going to go kill the Wizard. And the Wizard's like, why do you want to kill me? It can cause an out-of-game it can cause out of game fic- friction, right? So you might wanna say, like, pause for a minute. You know, like, Paul, are you interested in running your character as though they have been charmed by Strahd? And they say, yeah. And you say, is the rest of the group okay? Like, Paul's acting as Strahd's agent. Paul still loves you guys, and Paul's character still loves you guys. But are we all cool with that? And if they say, no, I, I don't really dig that style, you say, I think it'll be better if I command the character as Strahd would rather than you doing it just so. And so it's a good time to pause for a minute and ask the players how they feel about it, right? Are we good with this idea? Because even if the player who's doing it is good, that doesn't mean everyone else is, right? So it's a tricky, it's a tricky spot. And then you, you have that problem of player agency, right? That like, if, you, if you're if you charming them and then you're controlling it, well now they're just sitting there playing their Nintendo, right? Or playing, playing, you know, I don't know, the latest clicker game on their phone. That's not great either which is why i really like the you know reaction you know i charm you you take your reaction to move and make an attack against a friend but then you still have all your actions afterwards i kind of i kind of like that style but that's tricky but i think the big question is so you know talk to your players and are they into it or they are they not into it if they're not into it they're not into it right like again we don't we're not it's not our responsibility to make you know it's not our responsibility to make people make people happy Brandon says, I'm enjoying the City of Arches PDF. Thank you so much. I am, I am really enjoying it. If you, if you like the City of Arches, you'll like it even better now because it's got new maps and stuff in it, and it is gorgeous. The new maps are just awesome. So if you downloaded it before, go download it again because it's badass. I was wondering, what software do you use to lay out your documents? Word, and it sucks, right? I am using Word because I have it, and it's handy, and I can use it kind of. And I asked, so Brian Patterson of D20 Monkey is actually the one that gave me the, uh, the the little borders that I use on it. And I've been using it now for a while and I like it. And it means that it's very fast for me to kind of, I can write it in Word, I can clean it up in Word, and I can hit a button and I can export it to PDF, right? But boy, Word blows, like Word for layout blows. And I was just struggling with it yesterday. It just does weird things and you don't know why. And it's inconsistent and like you undo and like the undo isn't undoing the things that you wanted to undo. It's just terrible. And I should learn a better desktop publishing piece of software. I should learn, you know, Adobe. I should, I should learn, you know, InDesign or something, some, some program that would make it, but apparently that is not this day. So yes, I'm using word. Nick H says, I am planning on running a root campaign. Once my current game wraps up. That's awesome. And was wondering what would be your appendix N. This is very cool. I found giving a list of inspirational works in session zero really got my players to understand the tone and genre. This is this is great, and I I, I so I answered this question. I, I answered this on the Patreon, uh, so I hope you saw it there but I, I gave it a little thought and I actually added one from, from what's from what's on here. So Fist, I, one of the thing I did is I looked at which movies helped influence the adventures that I had in it, right? And that, so there were definitely some that are directly influenced by by certain movies. Fistful of the Dollars is, you know, a, a really good one. Good, The good, the bad, and the ugly is really good. I would put uh, Seven Samurai, of course. I always put Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai is so awesome, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course, right? Just pure, pure pure adventure another one i'd add on here is goonies i think goonies is a good one one thing that i think can really help capture the idea of of ruins of the Grendel root is that like it's okay to be a little goofy and funny right it's meant to be kind of a, a a fun you know big big terrible things can happen but also like it's it's meant to be a good time and the explorers are having a good time it's why they're there and that's why i think like the fun of goonies can can really work right that they that they're having a they're having a good time the keep polar opposite of Goonies but this is by Michael Mann uh, a, a relatively unknown movie but it was the basis there's a there's an adventure called The Cell that's directly taken from the keep Prince of Darkness but that's like a that's not a funny movie it's full of horror but it's a really cool one and it's all about like half a million year old canisters holding you know holding Satan it's really awesome The Ritual uh, I really love this movie again another gr- yeah, another grim one The Descent everybody would talk about The Descent The Descent is also really grim so these these three like The Keep prince of darkness the ritual descent and then i'll put time bandits at the end because i think time bandits also has this sort of like whimsical kind of fun fantasy where everybody's having a good time right so i those those would be my appendix those are all movies you know those are all movies that i that i that i that i really like so so nate i hope that gives you some you can kind of pick ones on here I think doing The Keep, Prince of Darkness, The Ritual, and The Descent are all pretty rough, so I might pick one of those that you might like instead, because you don't want to kind of ruin, you know, like th- th- those are really grim movies. They're great. I love them, but they're kind of grim movies. Actually, you know, a lot of people love The Descent. That's fine, but I thought Ritual is way better. James C. says, how do you determine the reward for quest completion? I've used the individual treasure table in the DMG, but it seems a bit low. Yep. On the other hand, the treasure hoard table seems too high for every quest. Maybe yeah probably what would you suggest they, they talk about how many treasure parcels are expected to be delivered across the level range of the characters I can't remember if it's in the Dungeon Master's Guide or Xanathar's Guide but it has it uh, I also kind of broke that down and looked at it, and in the treasure tables for the Lazy DM's Companion, I broke those and said, these are four treasure parcels you can offer up against a level. And they're meatier than the individual rewards, but they're not as big as the entire treasure hoard. And that way you can space it out. Most of the time, it's you, what you're really worried about are magic items. And I like to re, I like to offer up one substantial magic item per session, or at least per adventure so that by the time they get to higher levels, everybody should have one, right? So I usually drop like one permanent magic item, usually per session or maybe every other session. And that, that you know, especially if they're randomly generated, they can they can help a lot. So it's a little tricky, but yeah, if you look at like how many treasure parcels, uh, treasure kind of groupings they're gonna get, I think it's Xanathar's that that describes that you can use that but also if you want something a little simpler the lazy dms companion has a treasure table that kind of breaks down treasure by level and you can you can sort of use that and that helps it's bigger than bigger than individual but not as big as a hoard. but i use the hoard, and i think like you can take a hoard and divide it into chunks and then drop those chunks into different spots right and or or just once in a while give them a big hoard, just drop relatively meaningless amounts of gold until they actually like you know take out the hobgoblin for it and find the treasure hoard that's there and it's big right it's got lots of stuff in it i think that that i think that that can work too so james i hope hope that norton asks you have talked about upward and downward beats a lot have you ever used upward and downward beats during the same combat absolutely for example if the players are having a bad time they might get an unexpected advantage yep or if the combat is going well for them enemy reinforcements are arrive yep i like the idea but at what point does it become too much of a dm's fiat it's a good question right that that's that last part is the real zinger that yeah we have our hands on the dials and the dials are can, can be used for beats right enemies can run away more enemies can show up enemies start hitting harder enemies hit lighter we tweak the hit points if it's going easy but when is it too much and i've talked about the idea that like if you imagine you have a you know four dials right on you have this box with four dials and the four dials are number of monsters hit points of monsters, amount of damage they do and how many attacks they get. That those have resistance to them. They're springy. They don't they don't just churn real easily and you're done. They're they want to be in the center, right? And so you turn them when you think that they're really going to help and you and you and then otherwise you just kind of leave them you leave them you leave them be. I think if you're running certain battles, it's the, you know, the beats, like you you don't want to overdo the beats. I've, I've definitely, I've talked to friends about this, about the dangers of, of worrying too much about beats, which is like, if you're constantly worried about it and constantly churning them, it's too much. You really just want to have an idea when they're having when you, when you need them, right? When, wow, it's been a bummer. It's been like the descent and it's just been a bummer for, you know, half the, session right well now's the time to drop some good stuff on them if they've had a battle and you're looking around and everybody's like oh this thing again well that's maybe the time for something good to happen or if they're just steamrolling your boss battle well that's when you're like maybe i'll turn it and you can do a little bit of prep ahead of time to kind of figure out like if things go really easy for them what might happen or if things go really bad what might happen the other way if you think that's a possibility and then you can keep those little beats on hand and drop them in if you think it's it's right for them but but yeah you're you know you don't want to do beat you don't want to worry about the beats too much or it becomes too much like oh they're just waiting you know nothing matters right that like this is there's never like a perfect you know one or the other it's always like it's always you know a balance in all things and a balance when you're using the beats as well but but yeah can you use them during combat absolutely i think they work best if you have a couple of ideas about how it's going to change during the fight if you have a chance to figure that out before you actually run the fight that can that can certainly help Dominic says in a recent game, the Druid wanted to do some shopping. I had a few shops prepared and repurposed, but my main problem was coming up with interesting items to offer. I have several item books on hand, Vault of Magic, Griffin Saddlebag, DMG, but flipping through them on the spot proved to be very time consuming and boring. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any lazy uh, tips to pick an interesting selection of items across several books to fit a theme, i.e. Druid or assassin, man, the theme, the theme aspect threw me off. I didn't read this. I, I read this question and I didn't get all this far. I think to start with, rolling up some items ahead of time can help, right? That that's I, I would I would this is an area where doing it on the spot is probably not not great. You can do it. I've been doing it with ciphers in Numenera. They just roll up ciphers. I don't I don't plan them ahead of time we just roll them and you can do the same thing with And there's online tools that can roll really fast right i would love to see a vault of magic online tool that can roll magic items for, from vault of magic that'd be cool they need to do that the but i think that trying to focus them around like druid or assassin you're going to want to do a little bit of homework to say like what are the kinds of items that might be interesting for them like what do they want and that's where like asking them what kind of items they're interested in helps you get an idea of the kinds of things that might be available. But I always like to use to me the the ideal sort of magic item distribution is to to get a wish list right, not a specific wish list, but a general wish list. What are the kinds of items that you want to get, not which specific one, but what kinds of items do you like? I like big swords, right, or I like armor, or I want this thing. And you keep that in mind. And then the other side, you roll randomly and the random ones are really interesting. You get really kind of crazy fun magic items. So the other side, you're along with specific items that help people. But like focusing for like, like druids are a little tough, especially if they're like shape changing all the time. There's not a lot of stuff. Assassins, what do assassins want? They want armor and they want weapons and they want things to help them assassinate, right? And so like, that's a little easier because like good weapons can do it. And then you can customize stuff. I'm a big fan of customizing magic items by adding like spell effects to them or giving them a theme that kind of fits. So like building a dagger for an assassin, that's a lot of fun. And you can you can just make one rather than going to the books and, and, and picking one. So Dominic, I hope that that helps answer your question. Kent B. I just read City of Arches and thought it was fantastic. Thank you. Another person who loves City of Arches, by the way, and I love it too. I'm very happy with it. Go download it again. It's cooler. It's newer and better. You know, the map is freaking awesome. Let's look at it. You want to see it? Let's show it off. Let me go find it. Come on, the City of Arches. This is, look at, first of all, I changed the cover because I like the map so much. I changed the cover art to be part of the map because I think it looks it looks badass. So this art is by Chloe Ballard. She turned it over. We've been working on it. She's been working on it for a few weeks and we turned it over. So the new City of Arches book, there's a couple of tiny little tweaks in the text. I don't even remember what they are. And at the end, we now have the map with these things. This is the word sucks when trying to put these things in there. Sucked. But it's got a nice key. Oh, God, isn't that map awesome? Ah, I just love that map so much. It was so great to do. The player's guide is now in it. So you can, there's a one page player's guide. You could give the player's guide and the map to your players. You could actually print the map on the back if you're given a physical one. Or you can pull those two pages out of the PDF and hand it to them so that they have what's going on in the City of Arches. I've been working on this too. And then the Obsidian Skull, my my quick two-ish hour, one to two-ish hour First level event. It does not have, sorry, Teos. I really wanted to put rats in here, but there's no rats. But there are cult, cultists. It's got cultists. It's a two, quick two-page adventure for you to enjoy a little bit of time in the City of Arches. So that's the City of Arches. It is available to patrons right now. You can go, if you become a patron of Slifoist, you can go pick it up. So thank you for bringing it up. So Kent B says, I just read the City of Arches and thought it was fantastic, thank you. I've been working on an original D&D city for my group, but I feel like I've created a lot of info that has just kind of sprawled out of control. That can certainly happen. City of Arches and Empty Black's Kendar, which is also awesome, Empty Black's Iskandar was also something that influenced me to do City of Arches. I was like, I love that and I wanna do something like that. Has been extremely helpful examples for how to take something large like a city and condense the information down to something manageable. When writing it, did you learn anything new about creating a fantasy? Did you have any tips for people who might want to write a their own city of arches while wow, you've already turned in an abbreviation coa style for their campaign i do i'm gonna i'm gonna harp on one thing i'm gonna i'm gonna offer what i think is a, an important tip taos and i i don't know if taos is like hanging around he's like i don't have time for i don't have time for this anymore oh yeah taos is still here yeah sorry man no 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 rats uh in this one there will be I'll, don't worry i'll get i'll make sure we get some rats in the city of arches so taos loves rats spoilers he doesn't he doesn't love rats uh, i lost my train of thought. Talk about Teos. Man, that's a bummer. I'm sure it was a really good thought. Now it's totally gone. Oh, yeah. So the idea is like there's a difference between being a D&D designer and being a DM. All DMs are kind of designers. We're all kind of designing stuff all the time. But I think a lot of times, especially if we are, if we're, if we, you know, it's easy to get lost in the I'm not like I'm making a product for other people versus I'm just making stuff for my game right? If you're just making stuff for your game, you don't have to do nearly as much work as putting out a product for other people, right? I would not expect anybody to put out a 14 page city book. Although I imagine a lot of people have them putting out a a 14 page city source book for their city, for the game that they're running. You could do it on a three by five card, right? Just what are some interesting places that they're going to go find, right? And you don't, it's your city. It's in your head. You don't need to make a book, right? I need to make a book if I'm giving it to you guys, because you're, I'm not there at your table. But if you're at your own table, you don't need to do all that. So there's a difference between the amount of work you need to do for your home game and the amount of work you need to do to make a product for somebody else. And and it's, I think it's easy for people to get lost in that because they they aspire to publish something. A lot of people aspire to publish something, right? But the reality is, like, just jot some stuff down. Like, trust me, I'm the no, no, notes I put down for my game, they are not publishable, right? Like, you can see the, the kind of map. I'll show you, like... You know when I'm when I'm the kind of maps that I put together for locations. We'll go to like the location. This is from my Numenera location, right? The Temple of Faradon, right? So what did I do? I grabbed some art that I took right from Money Cook Games because I love the art. And I was like, ooh, that's cool. I took a map from Dyson. I didn't even annotate it. And I just jotted down. Who are some inhabitants? I went through the monster book and picked some out. What are some locations? I rolled some dice and came up with some interesting locations. What are the situation? What are some goals? That, that's all. Like the, I could not hand this to somebody else and they could run an adventure with it. They'd want more, right? But this is enough for me. It's all I need. So that's number one. So that's, that's the first thing I would offer is when you're making a city for your own game, you don't have to write it up like it's Iskandar or the city of arches, or I don't know, Tolis, right? Oh, 1100 pages. So I can write my own or 700 pages, right? For, for Monty Cook's game. So that's one things I learned. There were, there were, there were things that I really wanted to bake into the philosophy and I'm not even sure I was really great at it, right? I don't think it nailed it exactly the way I wanted to, which is. You can build your city around the characters. What are the locations of the city that matter to your characters? Where does your barbarian wanna go? Where does your bard wanna go? Where does your cleric wanna go? Where does your rogue wanna go? Focus on those places. What are the places you think they're gonna wanna visit when they go to a city? Start there. Don't start with like everything else, right? Like you don't need, if you don't have paladins or clerics, you probably don't need to worry about the temple, right? So focus on the characters and the places they wanna go, what's gonna to matter to them. That's one set of locations. And again, you don't need to fill them out too much, just have them, make them interesting, put some interesting NPCs there, but you know, just focus on the things that the characters are gonna use. And then how are they gonna get involved in adventure? Like what are the, what's gonna draw them in to make them do stuff? So then you might need other things. Could be as simple as a job board, right? I really like Dragon of Icebar Peak. And that it has a job board and like, maybe there's a job board, right? Maybe there's a guild of adventurers that are like, Hey, we have jobs, right? For adventures, your adventurers you want to go on jobs. So what is going to draw them into adventure? What's going to, what, what places need to be in the city that are going to draw them into adventure. And then there's a little bit of like, what are the basic infrastructure? They need a place to sleep. They need a place to eat. They need a place to go buy pythons, right? So what are the places that they have to have in the city that help them, you know, get what they need out of a city so that they can go in there right yeah red red bull true says i need snacks right so where do they go buy snacks that's important right so those i really wanted to focus that down when i was making it and i and i said it in the city of arches and then i realized like i made a lot of stuff and so i went back and actually revised it and i added more sort of character-driven locations so like one of the places in here where is it here right? I added a druid's grove. I was like, you know, there's a lot of like druids and rangers and stuff. And, you know, I had a player who's like, I really don't like cities. And here I am in the city. I'm like, I've got a place for you called the Sunset Grove, run by Grace and One Eye, right? He's this wild, unkempt druid who tends the grove. The grove is a weird, bigger on the inside kind of grove, so you could go get lost there. And there's this ancient archway and the archway is doing something to the area to make it more wild and and everything else. But it means that in the middle of the city, actually in the northwestern side, where's the you know, in the northwestern side, there is a grove. See all the trees, right? It's not huge, but like in the description it's like you could go there and get lost. Well, that's so there's a place for druids and rangers to go, right? It's specifically designed for them. So, there's a place for wizards to go. There's a place for fighters and bards to go. There's like the the a lot of the locations of this city are designed to fit character classes. And then the whole city is designed to fit any character race. That's the whole idea that travelers come to the city of arches and don't even know how they got there. But it's totally cool to have loxodon and lion people and and turtles and whatever. Any weird race makes sense in this city because it's this melting pot of people that came from all over all over the multiverse. So building number one and the thing that I think really answers your question here is building cities that are are there to support the characters, right? The specific characters you have specific characters. Build the city for those guys, right? So Kent B, I hope that helps. TJ says, I have a question. TJ's got the, the long question here. Look at this. TJ says, I have a question about how to telegraph a potentially deadly situation to the PCs without spoiling it for them or the DM. Do you have any suggestions on what to do when the PCs get in over their head, especially on a side quest or a non-main storyline thread? In my Grendelroot game, we'll give you a free pass on the giant question because you're going to talk about Grendelroot. Uh, in my Grendelroot game, the PCs are just about to embark on their journey to the Black Cathedral. I love it. But heard some, uh, some weird undead sightings up at the Marrowhold. That's very cool. Balin asked them to do some recon, and they decided to go check it out before heading into the Black Cathedral. When they got to Marahold, they witnessed some of the really marohold is a great name. Did I come up with that name? They witnessed uh, really dangerous stuff going on on the other side of the moat. Vorin, the the Bone King, was using an undead army to construct necroportals to fill the moat once again with ghouls in preparation for Yalan's return. Yalan is one of the archmages. Wow. So, yeah, you jumped right into the deep end. Instead of keeping their distance and gathering information, which is what I seriously thought they would do, they they took it all in, witnessed some really powerful creatures, and then waltzed in without a care in the world. DM, the DM's nice. He wouldn't kill us. That session ended in a cliffhanger, so I had two weeks to prepare for the encounter. Fast forward, I prepared a staged battle that would bring in some interesting and powerful monsters getting harder and harder and giving them opportunities to run. But they didn't take the bait until the very end when I pulled a nuclear option and had Voren show up with his 40 white champions and asked politely for them to leave. Leave. I wonder why they just kill him. I didn't want to TPK them, but I didn't want them to feel like they were getting nerfed. Yeah, tricky. So one big thing is players hate to run. There's a few things players hate. I think I've talked about this. I should, I should do a video about this, right? Things players really hate. They hate losing their stuff right? They'll never forgive you for losing their stuff. It's it's just people do not like to lose their stuff. These are th- things pe- players hate that DMs sometimes do, right? And one of them is losing their stuff. Oh, you're all captured and all your loot's gone and now you got to go get your loot again. Well, that sucks. I already went through the trouble getting in the first place. And now you're gonna make me go earn it again? That blows, right? So don't take their loot. Just try to find another way, right? They hate when monsters run. We were talking about this and, on Discord and I think it showed up it was a video or a question or something like that about you know pe- players hate it when or yeah, players hate it when monsters run, which is true if they get away. You know what they do love making lots of opportunity attacks against monsters that run. So if you're going to have a monster run, have them run and provoke because then you get to beat the hell out of them, and they probably won't make it because they're going to hit four times right, on their way out. So that, to me, you can get away with having monsters run if the players get to use opportunity attacks to go beat the hell out of them on the way. But if they get away, it still sucks. And they will chase them to the end of the earth and you'll never get out of that scene. You'll be like running across tunnels for 10 years because they're like, I'm catching that goblin. I don't care. I don't want him getting away. And it just goes on forever. So they hate that. They hate running more. They don't ever want to run. First of all, and I think Teos brought this up. I think I've heard him talk about this. I'm just talking about Teos all night tonight the, the game does not have good mechanics for running. There's not a good system for running, right? There's, there's, there's kind of like the will, you know, the, the willpower says so of the, the, what is it called morale? There's a little bit of a morale system in the DMG, but there's no good way for characters to disengage from a battle and run, right? If you think about like Final Fantasy, where you could like hit the left shoulder button and all the dudes would turn sideways and then flip away. You, there's no button like that. Uh, DM David had this on today. That's right. DM David was writing about this article and he quoted me, which is awesome. Right? And then I was thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, except the difference is opportunity attacks. <laughs> but it's true, right? So players hate running, which means you really don't want them to get in the situation in the first place. So what would I have done in this situation? First of all, I, I believe firmly in, in sharing too much than sharing too little. So I would be very clear with them that they are potentially getting into a situation that is deadly. I would say, because remember, their characters know more than the players do. The characters see this stuff. They're living there. It's their life and death. The player doesn't really care, right? The player cares a little bit, but not nearly as much as the character cares because the character's there, which means characters have data. They have information the players do not have, right? The characters know more than the players do. So you want to project that stuff that their characters know to the player. Like you're looking across and you're seeing way more undead than you're going to be able to handle, right? You You are pretty sure if you cross this, river of ghouls, you're gonna you know, it may be the end of your days, right? And if they say, F it, we're doing it anyway, all right. Let's roll for initiative, right? And like they're gonna get killed by the 40 whites. So, you know, I think I, I don't have any problem. And I don't think you're spoiling things because the 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 characters can see it. That we were talking about Numenera, right? In the level nine character. Probably characters can see what a level nine monster looks like and they're like that thing has a hundred eyes and i think it's going to shoot me with a hundred eye rays i'd rather not be here anymore right project i think projecting deadly battles is perfectly fine i don't think you're spoiling anything i think you are you are you're giving them information that likely the characters have and i would i would do it if they go in any way maybe they need you know maybe things go bad now there's that failing forward option of like what if you threw them and you said like look it doesn't make sense that vorun and the 40 white champions are not going to kick their ass but maybe they're captured you know captured maybe they're captured and all their stuff is taken but in this case they made the choice right i said never do that but if they go in that's not you're not forcing that situation right they could have won probably not but they could have not gone there at all Right. Then the other one is, how do you create a like a right trigger, uh, fan of fantasy style where you can run, you can say like, you know, there's a break in the battle and the, in the chaos of the situation, you think you have an opportunity to flee without worry, you know, without getting a bunch of opportunity attacks. Or if so-and-so is willing to take one opportunity attack, that will stop the rest, of, the, the rest of you will be able to break away. Right. Give them that chance so that they can say, go. Uh, yeah, verse says, like in EverQuest, uh-oh, it cons red, right? Like in MMOs, they do this. In MMOs, like, you know, you're right, things conned red in, in, in EverQuest, and in World of Warcraft, they have little skulls, right? And, like, you couldn't even hit them. Like, you'd swing and you're just missing, right? Lots of lots of games have this. And, and it's to help, right? It's to give you the player information that likely the character would have, right? So... I'm hoping that helps, right? I think I think those are a few tricks. Lean in, leaning to telling them, right? And and really say, like, be serious to say. Well, let's pause for a minute. This is a deadly situation for your characters, like that. You you know, Balin expected you to get recon. You've got that. If you go across, it may be the end of our. It may be the end of this party, right? I just want you guys to know that before you go across. You can do it. I'm not going to stop you. But that, those foes are beyond choose among yourselves, right? Then you've warned them. And if they say, yeah, we want to go do it. Well, then it's like, you know, Calic versus got me. It's like going into the Plane of Fear in EverQuest, right? Like they, they built the Plane of Fear. This is a little EverQuest lore for you. When they built the Plane of Fear in EverQuest, they said, we built a zone in this MMO. We don't expect anybody to go there. And we certainly don't expect them to, to, to survive. And they were right. You'd walk in there and mo- early in the EverQuest, people just got their asses kicked, right? And they lost all their gear. Because back then you lost all your gear in EverQuest and they lost experience and they lost levels and they lost gear and it was miserable. Like it was a miserable place. Going to the Plane of Fear in EverQuest was miserable, but you went there because it was a dare because the, the developers put it there to dare you to go and you went there anyway. And it didn't even, I didn't think the loot was particularly good, but boy, people went there. Project, project the difficulty. I think it's perfectly fine. So TJ, I hope that helps. Thank you for running Runes of the, Runes of the Grendel route. I'm glad you love it. I love that adventure to death. And I'm, it makes me really excited, and it, it 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 hits me in the in the heart region when I hear about marrow hold, and the bone king, and all this stuff. y'all Yalling coming back, really really great stuff. So that is great, my friends. We have covered all of the questions for February of 2022. So I want to thank the patrons of Sly Flourish in particular for ask, asking these questions and for supporting this show and for helping me do all that I do in here. It is a great joy. Uh, of mine to do it. And I, I thank you all. If you want to see a full list of all of the Patreon questions with little links to the clips, so you can go to each one and your patron on the patron page and the rewards page, there is the database where you can go to the database and you can click it. And it's, and it's really, it really works out. I hope you enjoyed this. If you did, you can help me out mostly by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish and, and asking questions like this. Uh, you can also uh, subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter and get new articles to your inbox every week. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel and get uh, alerts whenever, a new video goes up. Or you can pick up any of my books, uh, The Lazy DM's Companion, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, Lazy DM's Workbook, any of the other books, *Ruins of the Grand Root, all that sort of stuff. Thank you very much for watching the video. Have a great week. Get out there and play some D&D.